Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Many institutions, including academic health centers, are working to find creative solutions to the challenge of improving patient access to mental health services. One such effort is the Psychiatric Assessment and Brief Intervention, a pilot program developed by the University of California, San Francisco. Initially, this brief program was developed specifically for patients referred by university-affiliated primary care providers, but was later expanded to include referrals from non-primary care physicians. The program is run by an interprofessional team, including one psychologist and two part-time psychiatrists, and offers medication management or psychotherapy to patients age 18 years and older. The core features of the intervention include ensuring prompt access, actively partnering with patients, and referring providers, and coordinating seamless transitions of care. This article presents process outcomes and clinical measures collected to date. From October 2015 to June 2017, 139 patients with an average of two psychiatric diagnoses each were seen. The average wait for an appointment was eight days, and the average length of stay in the program was 11 weeks. Mean scores on the Patient Health Questionnaire and Generalized Anxiety Disorder Scale showed significant improvements in patient outcome measures. Informal patient and referring provider feedback has been positive. Although the Psychiatric Assessment and Brief Intervention is a small-sized pilot program, results show that significant clinical benefits can be achieved in a short period of time with a dedicated, collaborative team. Clinicians and patients are curious. Does cranial electrotherapy stimulation really work? Results from a recent study seem to suggest that the answer may be yes. A team of researchers at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center analyzed changes in brainwave activity associated with cranial electrotherapy stimulation. The carefully designed experiment explored acute changes in brainwave activity simulating the typical clinical use of cranial electrotherapy stimulation while minimizing confounding distractions. Fifty active duty service members receiving treatment at Walter Reed's Psychiatry Continuity Service participated in this study. The typical subject was mildly depressed and had significant trauma-related symptoms and severe sleep problems. Study subjects received a 20-minute session of cranial electrotherapy stimulation. 30-second measurements of brainwave activity were conducted before, immediately after, and 10 minutes after stimulation. The investigators found that brainwave measurements taken immediately after stimulation showed a significant increase and strong effect size in beta brainwave activity, suggesting an increase in mental alertness, focus, and concentration. Ten minutes later, the statistically significant increase and strong effect size in beta brainwave activity persisted and was joined by a reduction in slow brainwave activity, indicating an increase in mental alertness. These intriguing results will benefit from further research, 
but this study is a step in the direction of affirmatively answering whether cranial electrotherapy stimulation really does work. Adults with ADHD have high rates of cannabis use, so they probably have high rates of cannabis withdrawal when they stop using cannabis. However, this issue has not been formally studied. In this study, the authors evaluated 23 cannabis-using adults with ADHD who enrolled in a controlled clinical trial of atomoxetine treatment for ADHD. The subjects had no other current psychiatric comorbidity. All subjects had made a previous attempt to quit cannabis use without formal treatment and while not in a controlled environment. The authors collected extensive information about their quit attempt using a detailed questionnaire. 95% of these participants experienced at least one symptom of cannabis withdrawal and almost one-third met the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for cannabis withdrawal syndrome. The types and frequency of withdrawal symptoms and the prevalence of withdrawal syndrome were similar to those found in a previous study of 385 adults without any psychiatric comorbidity that used the same detailed questionnaire. These findings suggest that the presence of comorbid ADHD does not substantially alter the experience of cannabis withdrawals in adults. This research was supported by funding from the Intramural Research Program, National Institute on Drug Abuse, National Institutes of Health. Patients with factitious disorder present to multiple providers with feigned symptoms of an illness in order to take on the role of an ill patient. They may present with a wide variety of physical symptoms, including self-inflicted injuries as well as psychiatric symptoms. What differentiates this disorder from others in its class is the desire to be perceived as an ill patient. In this issue's continuing medical education offering, the authors focus on providing a psychological explanation for the etiology of factitious disorder. There are multiple psychological theories that attempt to explain factitious disorder. An unstable or abusive childhood can drive a patient to seek comfort and protection from healthcare providers. In abusive environments, patients often feel a lack of control over their lives, and by creating symptoms of an illness, they are able to regain that control and build a personal identity. Patients also go through invasive procedures, which can be looked at as a way of punishing themselves for the guilt that they experience as a result of abuse. Presenting themselves as ill can also help them cope with guilt, which could result from a variety of reasons such as not meeting expectations at work or in their personal lives. Treatment of factitious disorder can be difficult and usually requires a team of a psychiatrist, a primary care doctor, social workers, and therapists. First-line treatment is psychotherapy, with or without the use of confrontation. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is a rare but potentially life-threatening condition associated with the use of dopamine antagonists such as first- and second-generation antipsychotics and some neuroleptic medications and the abrupt withdrawal of dopaminergic agonists such as those used to treat Parkinson's disease. Clinical symptoms include mental status changes, psychomotor agitation, fever, autonomic dysfunction, and rigidity. Patients may also present with rhabdomyolysis, accompanied by elevations of creatine, phosphokinase, 
liver enzymes, and white blood cells. The differential diagnosis for a neuroleptic malignant syndrome is broad and includes central nervous system infection, sepsis, and medical conditions such as thyrotoxicosis, malignant hyperthermia, malignant catatonia, drug overdose, serotonin syndrome, and heat stroke, to name a few. As such, neuroleptic malignant syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion. This article provides an overview of neuroleptic malignant syndrome for the general practitioner with the most up-to-date information on etiology, workup, and management. Primary care physicians should be aware of this syndrome in order to recognize it early and prevent lethal consequences. Tablet splitting is a common practice among patients on oral pharmacotherapy. About 25% of tablets are split, even those that are unscored or not allowed to be split according to the package insert. The score line in the center of the tablet is meant to assist splitting, allowing the administration of half or quarter tablets. Tablet splitting reduces the cost of prescriptions and allows dose flexibility, which is especially important for pediatric and geriatric patients. In this review, the authors assessed if the practice of splitting tablets containing psychoactive medication for medical or economic reasons would result in the expected doses. Tablet splitting implications are extensive, yet substantial deviations from the ideal weight, potency, and dose uniformity are prone to be the most significant. The uneven divisions of tablets may result in the administration of different doses than what was prescribed, causing under- or overdosing, which may be relevant depending on the drug. The authors found splitting to be satisfactory in 55% of the studies. However, the results varied according to the pharmacologic class of the medications evaluated. It cannot be generalized that splitting psychoactive drugs compromises dose adjustment, thus tablet splitting might still be employed in cases in which the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. It is recommended that alternatives be adopted in order to prevent the disadvantages related to tablet splitting. Complaints of hypoglycemia resemble the sedative effect of antipsychotics. As such, clinicians may overlook hypoglycemia in patients with psychiatric disorders. This brief report presents the case of a female patient with bipolar disorder who presented to the clinic with depressed mood, insomnia, appetite loss, and loss of motivation. Assuming she had depression, the physician prescribed mirtazapine. But when delirium emerged, she was also prescribed quetiapine. Soon after quetiapine was administered, the patient developed hypoglycemia associated with hyperinsulinemia. This case suggests that clinicians should bear in mind the potential for hypoglycemia induced by a second-generation antipsychotic. Read on to find more about this interesting case. Depression is common and associated with numerous chronic medical conditions such as coronary artery disease, hypertension, and diabetes. Statins provide protection against coronary and cerebral vascular diseases by decreasing cholesterol synthesis in the liver. Statin medications also reduce inflammation. 
Since the pathophysiology of depression involves inflammation, statins could have a role in the treatment of mood disorders and might become a pharmacotherapy option for patients experiencing depression. The authors of this brief report discuss statins and their possible role in the treatment of depression. There is evidence suggesting an antidepressant effect when statins are adjunctively co-prescribed with antidepressant medicines. However, confounding data also exists, refuting a positive effect of these drugs at elevating mood. Thus, the authors suggest that more research is required to confirm a potentially beneficial effect of prescribing statins to people with clinical depression. Have you ever wondered what is responsible for an altered mental status with abnormal movements? Have you been uncertain about when and how to evaluate a patient with such signs and symptoms? Have you been perplexed about how to treat such an individual over the short and long term? If you have, then the latest article in our rounds in the general hospital section, which illustrates the complexity of diagnosing and treating a patient with a mixture of motor and psychological symptoms, should prove useful. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics and the latest psychotherapy casebook article. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings and our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.